Where you going? No, man, you got the right classroom. Come on in, take a seat beside me, my friend. Hey, look, here come T.A. Charlie. Let's see what he got to say. Morning, it's Worship Wednesday. Get in your pews. You're watching the Road to Concord with Professor Joe Bakanovic. Homeroom is on Rumble. You just go to Rumble and you search the channels for the Road to Concord. It's one word. When you find it, you go ahead and you click follow. Might mean you got to set up an account, but it's fast, it's easy, it's free. I did it. You can do it. For those technologically challenged members of the class, you can also catch us on Facebook, Twitch, Twitter, and YouTube. You can catch the podcast after the show. It's uploaded to Podbean, iHeartRadio, and Spotify, and hopefully BitChute if it works. Just look for The Road to Concord. You can go to the blog page. That's roadtoconcord.com. That's where you find all your show notes, study notes, and handouts for the class. Finally, you can email a professor at joe at theroadtoconcord.com. He's still a little slow, but he'll eventually get around to emailing you back. I'll have to get on him later today. If you find our classes helpful, please click the thumbs up, like, subscribe, and share it with those you think could benefit from it. Just warn them. Yeah, warn them. Joe is an acquired taste. Hey, we all know T.A. Charlie isn't all there. Now, just stay seated and give it a chance. You'll soon realize we not might be the smartest, but we each independently form opinions based on reason and logic. We're free thinkers. Let's see what the road to Concord with Professor Joe Bakanovic has on the lesson plan for today. Hey, T.A. Charlie, <clears throat> take a note. Road Dog is tardy. In, well, no, Again? there he is. I just saw Aaron. But Road Dog's tardy. I want a thesis paper from him on the Divine Council worldview. <laughs> yes. All right. I so will let him know. Make sure he, he knows that his paper is due on Monday. <laughs> You're fully footnoted. <laughs> Good morning, class. Okay. I told you yesterday in a couple of times since last week. Today, I want to cover something known as you know, the unseen realm and the divine council worldview. Um, they all go hand in hand. They go together. Um, I originally stumbled across this. Um, oh, geez. Right after the book was written, man, is this how how long ago is this now? The there was a book written by Dr. Michael Heiser, and he was he just recently passed away in February of this year, uh, 2015. So this is almost 10 years old. Now let me just introduce you to him just a little bit. Uh, let me see here. I've got to get the slideshow. I'm I'm audible, calling an audible. So I'm changing what I was going to do on the fly. Dr. Michael Heiser, he was with a church congregation in Jacksonville, Florida, before he passed away. He passed away from pancreatic cancer. He wrote this book, The Unseen Realm. And if you are watching the chalkboard, if you can see the screen, I got my copy right here with me. I also bought it. I bought several copies of this book, and I bought the Kindle dish, the version so that I could mark it all up real good and always have it with me wherever I went. In my opinion, in my opinion, this is the most important book a believer can read outside of the Bible because it will put your mindset in that of a second temple period Hebrew Bible believer in the times of Jesus. And oh my 
gosh, there are a lot of things in the Bible that I did not recognize before until he showed me how to look for them, how to look at them. I had to, I had to change my perspective. And once he showed them to me, oh boy, they're there. They are there. It's in your Bible. You just got to look at it from an ancient Near East Hebrew perspective instead of a modern day Greco-Roman perspective. He's got another book, a companion book. This one here, The Supernatural Worldview. It's kind of like the cliff notes of the bigger book, you know, different. One of the things I found with Dr. Heiser, and I got, I had the privilege of, of several email conversations with him before he passed away. I like Dr. Heiser because he and I speak the same language. He's a scholar. He actually understands logic. He understands original source material. He understands what does the text actually support. He understands what's going on behind the scenes that the text assumes you already know. He understands all of this. He was also a uh, ancient Near East language expert. He's world-renowned biblical Hebrew expert and an authority on biblical Hebrew. He also read Koinine Greek, Sanskrit, a whole bunch of other stuff. Very prolific man. He has done a lot of work and he's left it all over the internet for us. Um, I'll dump this here real quick and we will share the screen real fast. Let me put this over here. This is his um, homepage, Dr. Michael Heiser. It's drmsh.com. I link you to it in uh, your show notes today, and we'll get to that. And incidentally, real quick, this is going to be a bit of a hodgepodge of a show today. Like I was telling Charlie, this man has produced so much information to help believers, and I have consumed so much. I don't know how to organize this in a good manner. I don't. It's just something you got to dive into and start swimming. One of the reasons I like Dr. Heiser is he is always going to connect you back to the scriptures. Always. Every time. He points you to God, Jesus, in the scriptures, not to himself. He can be a little difficult for a lot of people to listen to when he speaks because he's kind of, he's an academic. It's kind of dry and boring, but I like him, but that's just me. This is his webpage. And he has a podcast called The Naked Bible. There are over 400-something two-hour episodes on there. There is some very good scholarly stuff on that collection of podcasts. Well worth your time, in my opinion. He also worked with this program here, the, the Logos Program Bible Study app. This is eSword on steroids, but it... it, it they have some stuff that's free, but for the most part, this is a paid program that the majority of us are not going to be able to afford. That thing is expensive, but man, is it powerful. If you watch any of his videos, you'll see him using it. And like I said, you'll powerful program. If you are blessed to have the finances and the wherewithal, better than eSword. Mm -hmm. And it comes with a very massive library, electronic library, like six, seven, eight thousand books or something that you can access electronically and download and read. You go to your show notes today, the road to concord.com. Like I said, I'm just going to walk you through this the best I can. I have a bit of an outline, 
We're just going to get through it the best I can today. It's got a little bit of hodgepodge and jumping around. This is your show notes for today. The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. This will link you to his site. This links you to logos. This is the uh, Amazon listing for the book. You can buy this the soft cover book for 15, 16, 17 bucks. Very, very, very worth your money and time, in my opinion. Supernatural, it's a little cheaper. It's like the Cliff Notes. Uh, it's worth having both if you can afford it. They do cover slightly different material. This is one of his videos. This video is long. This one here is part one of a series of videos that'll run you six, seven, eight hours. You go watch it. As soon as you're done, go into the right-hand column and go to number two and then to number three and number four, et cetera, et cetera. This is a questions and answers seminar from, from the total of, the, of that seminar. This is question and answers period. And here is a different seminar on the unseen realm. This is where he's teaching people about the material in it. Um, I really like this video, but it's six hours long, folks. Um, this is not for everybody, but it will keep you busy. I'll tell you what, next week when we're taking the week off, here's your work for you. Start working through this. And then we will get to this book in a minute. That's part two of today's class. Part one, Unseen Realm and what, they, what he calls the Divine Council Worldview. There are a lot of believers that do not like Dr. Heiser. They call him a heretic. They call him a heretic because Dr. Heiser says that Yahweh reigns in a pantheon of gods. And they're like, oh my God, he's a polytheist. I can't deal with him. He is correct. They are wrong. But here's the thing. Joe, did you just say there's more than one God in the world? From the perspective of Dr. Heiser, Yes, Dr. Heiser is a Hebrew scholar. God is the only English word we have for the Hebrew word Elohim or El. Elohim is plural, gods. He will tell you in his papers, in his book, if you read The Unseen Realm, he goes through this very carefully, very methodically. He takes you by the hand and walks you through it. Essentially, in a nutshell, any disembodied spirit whose natural habitat is the spirit world, heaven or hell, is an Elohim. That would be a huge... Charlie, pop your mic on for us. Is this not a fairly accurate definition of the Hebrew word El or Elohim? That is accurate. All right. This is why Yahweh is called El Elyon, meaning what, Charlie? <laughs> Elohim. The Elohim Most High. In other words, the Einzama Spitzel. Yes, he's the he's, this is good top, as a gets. top of the heap. You don't you yep. don't get any higher than that. That's why it, th this is just an aside, a little squirrel. But when you see in the scriptures, you know, people, you know, even Yeshua talked about, you know, hey, if you do an oath, you know, of the temple, you know, or by heaven or whatever, you know, they're always they're always doing an oath by something greater than themselves. Mm -hmm. But when Yahweh makes an oath, what does he do? How does he do it? He swears by himself. He swears by himself. Because there's nothing greater. Because there's nothing greater. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, it just, you know, just, just a little squirrel. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> so, and Dr. Heiser will also let you know that all these other little, little gods, little Elohim, they're created beings. 
Yahweh made them. However, this is why the names can be important. Like I said, I'm going to be all over the place a little bit today. Try to stick with me. I've got some slides, so I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to tighten this up in a minute. I'm trying to introduce this to you. This is a, there's no substitute for reading his book. He's got this information down better than I do. But I've been through this book almost as many times as I went through the uh, Hidden Beast 2. I've been five or six times I've read through this book. I know the information. I have no idea how to give it to you short of just going through it. Now, one of the classmates out there said, we need to do another book study. This would be the book study. Let me tell you. Um, Dr. Heiser tries hard to get believers to understand their Bible on its original terms. And he tries hard to get them to stick to what does the text say? Don't read things into it that aren't there. Now, he and I differed in a few areas. He does not really recognize the prophetic language, even though the prophets tell you they have their own language. He's a little too literalist in some areas. He does not like prophecy. It's not that he doesn't understand it or study it. He flat tells you, hey, look, man, it causes more arguments than it than, than, than does good. So let's just stay away from it. I don't mind grabbing hold of prophecy because I think I'm, and, and yeah, I know this is very arrogant of me to say, but I think I handle it a little better than he does because I attack it from a different perspective. That's not his focus. Dr. Heiser's focus is going to be on essentially the second book we're going to look at today, re reversing Hermon, but also the divine council worldview, because you really, honestly, you cannot understand your Bible unless you have this background in your head. So essentially, let me go over the divine council worldview, and then I will start making Dr. Heiser's case for a lot of this in the scriptures. Remember the Lord's prayer on earth as it is in heaven. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will. Well, as a friend of mine says, that also produces earth shadows or reflections of the heavenly realm here on earth. We do things here that reflect the spiritual reality. We have human beings in the ancient times. The kings would rule through their families, royal families. Their extended families, you know, brothers and sisters, aunts, uncles, mom, dad, et cetera, et cetera, children, cousins. This is where you kind of get, you know, dukes and duchesses and things like this. This is why family lines were important and is one of the reasons why you wanted to make sure your children were yours because they thought their family lines were divine. So we don't want to get any, you know, moguls, muggles in there with the witch lane, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, the kings had a court of royals. It, this is a court of advisors and administrators. And the king, they helped the king um, administrate his kingdom and institute and enforce his decrees, you know, basically his laws. A lot of people would say that we've written that into the stories about God, you know, atheists and scoffers. I say it's the other way around. I say this is an earth shadow or a reflection of the divine reality. Heiser would agree, probably agree because that's exactly what he argues. Yahweh, and I'm going to use Yahweh today to tell you which God I'm talking about because there are others. Hasatan's name has been removed from history. We do not know Satan's actual name. 
he becomes called Hasatan in the second, second temple period. But in the first temple period, as we're about to see, he's actually a member of the court and may not actually be the devil at all. But we know the names of some of the other fallen angels. Remember the goat that is for Azazel, Azazel, you know, the scapegoat? That's one of the names of the fallen angels. Mm, yeah, we know some of their names. Um, Samiramis and a couple of others. We'll get to that in a little bit. This is Enochian material. But Yahweh has a divine court. And he has created heavenly beings that the Bible calls El or Elohim. The only English word we have is gods. Most often, your scriptures are going to translate that as angels. And that works. That works just fine because it doesn't make you think gods. But in the ancient Near East, that's what they would have thought of. Heavenly created beings. You know, where the gods live. The problem here is when Satan or Satan rebels, the fallen angels go with him and start deceiving man and making man think that they are gods too. And this is where the pantheon mythology comes from, according to the divine council worldview. That's where that's going to come from. That's our earth shadow of the lies and deceptions from these fallen angels. So what we need to understand is that wherever the king is, his court's going to be with him. So wherever Yahweh is, the court is there. Eden was Yahweh's court at that time. And Dr. Heiser will go over a very interesting likelihood in his book, Unseen Realm. This is a th th one of the reasons I suggest that all believers read this. This thing is just as deep and dense as your Bible. Maybe not as deep and dense per se. Don't let me exaggerate it and equate them. They're not equal. But what I mean is he is going to hit you with one thing after another, after another, after another, and he's going to point you all to scripture and explain what's going on. So in the garden, the serpent, more than likely, Satan, Satan, the devil. Bible gives us good reason to believe this. But the word serpent there, Nakash, also can give you the impression in Hebrew this is what Charlie's tried to explain to us over time. Hebrew has a lot of different meanings because of the way that language is structured. It, it, one word can make you think of many different things all at the same time. And if I'm wrong, Charlie will jump in and correct me. Trust me, y'all seen him do it before. Nakash is going to give you the idea of the serpent and shining one all at the same time. And seraphim, guardian angel, throne guardian angel, all at once. Because it's all connected with the word. Which is why Eve wasn't all that surprised when the Nakash talked to her. Because it was more than likely an angelic being, not a snake. And then we, we anthropomorphize that, that being into actually making, metaphorize it, make it like a real snake, you know, crawl on your belly, et cetera, et cetera. It's theological, but it was more than likely, more than likely this was an angelic being talking to her. And there's reasons for that. He goes over, it's in, the, it's in the Hebrew, and it's also in the mindset. The divine council worldview would be one of those things that your Bible's not going to stop and say, hey, we're building this all on the divine. It's not going to do that because it's just assumed. Everybody knew it. I don't have to start talking to you about the Constitution. And the, and the, I don't have to start talking to you about a modern American politics by stopping and starting all the way back and explaining where the Constitution, the Declaration come from, and our president, and all the three. 
you generally roughly have an idea of that. So I can start talking about politics and you'll in the United States and you'll, you'll, you've already got the background there. I don't need to go through that. Well, that's the same thing here. The, the people who wrote the scribes and prophets who wrote the Bible assumed you already knew this divine council worldview, but the hints are all through your scriptures. I was telling you in Eden, Yahweh walks with Adam, wherever Yahweh is, the council is. That would have just been assumed. But remember in the story of Job, Hasatan comes in to see Yahweh in the throne room. And Yahweh goes, where you been? Yeah, I'm paraphrasing. Where you been? Oh, I'm coming back from going to and through the earth, man. And I got some accusations to do. All these people are crazy. And Yahweh says, have you considered my servant Job? Well, Hasatan, that's not the name of the devil. Hasatan is a member of the court, of the divine court. It's a position. It means the accuser, the, accu the one who accuses, the, the prosecutor. He's a legal position or legal title. He's the prosecutor. He accuses Yahweh's people. And he's the attorney general. Yeah, he's the attorney general. So in that, in, in Job, this might be a faithful angel. This, this, this doesn't mean he's the devil. This this uh, Satan and Job may not be the devil. That may be a faithful angel doing the job that Yahweh gave him to do. Hey, go look and see who's screwing up. Come back and report. And the Satan might become, and it may be the devil. We don't know. We don't know. First Kings story about Ahab. We'll cover that one in a few minutes. Um, giving of the law at Sinai. That was given to him by the angels. No, Joe, it was Yahweh. <laughs> have you read your Bible very closely? It was both. What? Yes. So when Nebuchadnezzar, when, when Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream for him, so this is what God says the dream means. No. That was the interpretation given to him by the watchers. What? No, no, no. It's Daniel said God gave him it. Yahweh did. Yes. They both did. What? Have you read your Bible very closely? This is one of the things that Dr. Heiser taught me to do. Read my Bible much more closely than I've been doing. He also taught me a phrase that's very good and it's stuck in my head. If it's weird, it's important. There's a lot of weird stuff in your Bible. And he goes over it. And like I said, this book is one of the best things I know to read outside of my Bible is the best thing I've read outside of my Bible for me. How's that work? All right. Let's get into the little outline I have for you. Second Chronicles 36, 17. This is going to be at the heart of the beauty of what Dr. Heiser did, at least for me. He woke me up. He made me believe that the spirit world is more real than this material world. Why is that important? Oh, brothers and sisters, because that's the eternal world. This one is not more real than this one. This is temporary. Heiser will get you thinking this stuff's real. There are angels right here in the room with me, or could be, there could be demonic spirits. This is real. This is one area where the Pentecostal movement has a leg up on most other believers. They may get it wrong and they may recognize unclean spirits as being Yahweh or the Holy Spirit. They might, they might, and that's dangerous, but at least they believe that the spirit world is real. 
A lot of us say we do. Where we don't live our lives, we don't think as though we actually believe it. That's a mistake. The Bible is very clear on this. So, whoops, that's not what I expected to do. My apologies. If you're watching the chalkboard, I'm screwing up the computer again today. Second Chronicles 36:17. I read out of an NASB Bible today, folks. Everything I read from you for you today is NASB. It says, So he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on the young man or virgin, old man or frail. He handed them all over to him. So this is a historical account of the sacking of Jerusalem. Everybody's being murdered. You don't see any mention of spirits there, do you? It was the Chaldeans did it. Ah, there's a parallel verse. This is Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 4 through 9. The exact same event, the same place in time, same event, same people, same everything. This one here, Second Chronicles 36, 17, whoever wrote it, this is how that person, that, this is how that author see, saw or reports the event. Now let's see how Ezekiel saw it. He's seeing the spirit world. He's a prophet. He's in a vision. He says, and Yahweh said to him, go through the midst of the city through the midst of Jerusalem and make a mark on the foreheads of the people who groan and sigh over all the abominations which are being committed in, in its midst. But to the others, he said in my presence, go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly kill old men, young men, female, virgins, little children and women, but do not touch any person on whom is the mark. You shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. He also said to them, defile the temple and fill the courtyard with the dead. Go out. So they went out and struck and killed the people in the city, and they were striking the people, and I alone was left. I fell on my face and cried out, saying, O Yahweh Elohim, are you going to destroy the entire remnant of Israel by pouring out your wrath on Jerusalem? Now pay attention to what he says next, Yahweh. Then he said to me, Yahweh says, the guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is very, very great. And the land is filled with blood and the city is full of perversion. For they say, Yahweh has abandoned the land and Yahweh does not see. Oh boy. Before I had read the unseen realm, I would have not understood what was going on here. I had read the hidden beast too. That's where I learned about this passage in the one in Chronicles. But what is going on here? This is the army of the hosts. These are the loyal angels doing this bidding. They're killing everybody who does not have the mark of Yahweh on their head. Can you see a mark on my head? Do I have the mark of Yahweh or the mark of the beast? I don't know. The spirits see it. The unclean and the obedient angels, the good and the bad, both see it. The watchers can see which sign I have. So they go through, and it's the same language. They do the same thing. They kill everybody. Where does he start? Starts with the temple. Judgment starts with the house of the Lord. It's right there in that passage. Start at my temple and then defile it. Well, I'm going to be saved out. They're going to be raptured. The church doesn't have to go through wrath. Start at the house of at the temple at the house of Yahweh and defile it. Throw the dead bodies in it. Make it unclean. Make it where it's no longer good for me to inhabit. You think, oh my gosh, 
You're not tracing concept, brothers and sisters, if you don't understand this. So then he goes through, and, and Ezekiel's like, are you going to slay everybody right down to the last remnant? How's Yahweh answer this? He says, the house, the guilt of the house of Israel and the house of, Ju of Judah, two houses. And we got believers that say, no, that's not in your Bible. It's right there. What's that got to do with the, the unseen realm and the divine council worldview? Everything. We're talking about the gospel here. Yes. And Dr. Heiser was on to this. He didn't like the language. And I tried to talk to him about it one time. He didn't want to go there. But this entire book is about the gospel of Jesus. He, he, he found it. He just didn't recognize it in the, in the terms that I do. He still found it. And he found Torah. Let me prove this. Torah. Teachings of Yahweh. You know, I was talking about this yesterday. This is, um, this is from his book, Supernatural. This is kind of like a summary of everything. On page 165, Yahweh is looking for faith, for believing loyalty. In other words, you walk as though his promises are real. Well, he's spiritual, Joe. Yes, make the spirit world more real than the material. Live your life. That's what it means by walk. Walk the path. Live the way. Live your entire life. Not just on Sundays when you go to church. Not just Wednesday. Not just when you're around church. Your entire life. Every second of every minute of every hour of every day of every year of your life. That's true Hebraic faith. You live it. He just said so. Faithful. He says, believing loyalty. Believe that the promises are real and that they will come to pass. And then on the last page of the book, 167, he says, everything we do and say matters, though we may never know why or how, but our job isn't to see, it is to do. Walking by faith is not passive, it's purposeful. It's intentional. It is not a noun. It is a verb. He got right where I'm at already. He didn't like the language I use. He didn't like the way I conceive of it. But he was in the exact same. He's even in the infield of the ballpark. We're both sitting behind the catcher. He's just up bleachers away from me. Comment on the board from Aaron Spikes. I recommend that everyone listening read The Unseen Realm. It helped me really open my eyes to the divine council worldview and the spiritual world. Amen, brother. So we've read this passage between Chronicles and Ezekiel. It, the Bible tells you that just because it's happening in the material world does not mean it's always the function of men and men alone. You might actually be doing the bidding of a clean or unclean spirit. What do I mean by clean? Holy. Yeah, talk to those in the Six-Day War. Yeah. They saw it. All right. So let's keep going here. Whoops. Let me bump this out and pass through a few slides here. I got ourselves out of order. Now this is back in where I want to go. All right. For Dr. Heiser, when you read his book, he'll tell you when this all clicked for him. He was in school and he's studying Hebrew. And then he reads something a friend of his gave him. We're going to read it here in a minute. And we'll probably chime Charlie in on this a little bit, but we'll see. 
Deuteronomy 32.8. Everybody should, if you're a believer and you're listening to me, you should know the story of when Yahweh divides up the nations in the Tower of Babel, right? 70 nations, divides them up. <gasps> 70. Where have I heard that before? Oh, that's right. 70 nations, according to the sons of Yahweh. Hold on. We'll get to that in a minute. I'll prove that to you. 70 elders of Moses. Moses' father-in-law says, you need some help. How many elders do they appoint? 70. There's 70 judges. How many members are in the Sanhedrin? 70. Does this number 70 ring often in scripture for you? Why? Because it's an earth shadow. It's a reflection. It's a divine reflection. That number is going to, it's like if Yahweh dreams a dream, his dream might echo in our world over and over and over again in different ways, different times, different places. So is the spirit world real? Yeah, Joe, Ephesians 6. Yes, exactly. But what is Ephesians 6 talking about? Ephesians 6 is talking about Daniel and the principalities. Daniel's princes, prince of, you know, prince of Israel, prince of Persia, prince of Greece, the prince who is to come, those are all spiritual beings. They're watchers. They're watchers. What? We'll get to that. But this is all spirit stuff. This is very, very, very real. And you've got to make it as real in your mind as anything possible. So now let's go to this passage in Deuteronomy 32.8. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, and when he separated the sons of mankind, the human beings, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. That is not what's in your Hebrew. In your Hebrew, it says the sons of Elohim, of El. Why is that important? Remember yesterday I was telling you that sometimes the biases of the translators sneak into our scriptures. This is one of those cases. That is not the sons of Israel. How do I know? Charlie, help me out here. Where is Israel at the time that Yahweh separated the nations at the Tower of Babel? Uh doesn't exist yet no it doesn't so how could this possibly be the sons of israel uh that would be that would be hard yeah but they didn't know the translators honestly they didn't know the divine council worldview or they rejected it so they didn't know what else to put in there can't possibly be the sons of god what the heck are those and yet they had job where all the sons of god elohim sang at the creation Folks, this is in here. This is all divine counsel worldview. Now, let me show you. Psalm 82. We'll get Charlie in here in a minute when we go to the interlinear. Because he reads the Hebrew. Psalm 82. This is what was the click for Dr. Heiser. One of his friends handed this to him in the Hebrew when he was studying Hebrew. It's about unjust judgments are rebuked. Psalm of Asaph or Asaph or whatever. This is God takes his positions in the high assembly. He judges in the midst of the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Salah, which means pause. Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Save them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk around in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. 
I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, God, judge the earth, for you possess all the nations. You ever heard that preached in your church anywhere? I doubt you will. I'll show you something. This is going to be hard for you to see. I'll do my best with this. This is Bible, uh, BibleHub.com, interlinear, Psalm 82. It does not read in the Hebrew what we just read in the translation. Not at all. I've had Charlie look at this this morning already. It says a psalm of Asaph or Asaph. I don't know how to pronounce that. Charlie would. It says God. No, it doesn't. It says Elohim. Now, that's the only word we have, but this would be God's. This is the plural. So we know we're talking about Yahweh. Takes his stand in the congregation. Okay. Congregation. Edah. Yep. Accordingly, this is what it means. NAS concordance. And then Brown Drivers Briggs. This is what this is what Charlie tells me I want to go by. Construction or congregation. Congregation of Yahweh. Okay. A company of angels. Ooh. Congregation of El, a company of angels right there. Psalm 82, verse 1, Brown Drivers Briggs. So he's not in a company of people here. He takes his stand in the congregation of the angels. And it says, among the gods, among the Elohim. So this is not where a lot of people will teach you that this this is a um, this is the congregation of the elders of Israel is what they think it is. It is not what the Hebrew says this is. This is the divine council, literally straight up, right in the, right in the Hebrew, right in our faces. And he says he judges, and he says, until when will you judge unjustly? In other words, how long are you going to judge judge unjustly, you got you people, you gods? And he goes through this, and he says, you are gods. Elohim, you are Elohim. You are created spiritual beings. So let's go back to our English because it'll be a little easier. And let me start adding what I've understand understood how to translate this. Yahweh takes his position in this case. Elohim, Yahweh takes his position in the divine council, and he judges in the midst of the angels. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? He asks them that question. He pauses, then he turns around and now he gives him a command. Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Save them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk around in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. In other words, teach the people that I put under your command. This is after the separation at the Tower of Babel. Each of these sons of Yahweh were given a nation to teach. What did they do? They taught the nations to worship them, not Yahweh. This is at the heart of what's going on here. This is how the Second Temple period would have been understood. I'll show you. Dr. Heiser proved this to me. I'll share what I learned with you today. So this continues. He says, I said, you are gods. You are Elohim. You are created angelic beings. And all of you are sons of the Most High. My sons. Wait a minute. I thought... Jesus was the firstborn son. Oh, Dr. Heiser will go over that with you too in his book. He explains what only begotten means. Okay, you're my sons. Nevertheless, you will die like men. The angelic beings are eternal. They don't know death. But these are. These are going to know death, and they're going to fall like one of the princes. These are the princes of Daniel. 
Arise, Yahweh, Elohim, judge the earth, for you possess all the nations. You possess all the nations? This is gospel language, folks. This is the true gospel language. Yahweh is telling them, teach the nations to worship me. I am El Elyon. You didn't do it. The punishment for this sin is death, just like man. You will die. What does the book of Revelation tell us happens to all of the rebellious angels? Cast in the lake of fire where they die. Concept. All of this is tracking. One of the reasons I say that this is one of the most important books I've ever read outside of the Bible, probably the most important book I've ever read out of the, outside of the Bible, is it will teach you to trace the concept. He doesn't speak of it in that language, but Dr. Heiser traces concept. And he does so using the, 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 the Hebrew mindset and their language. And he taught me trace the concepts. Oh, boy, has this opened my scriptures for me. I cannot encourage you strongly enough. Read it. Go through it. Now, here's another one I've got for you. People will say, well, there are no gods out there, Joe. That's just fake. Uh-huh. You shall have no other gods before me. So Yahweh lied to you. No, it means false idols. That's not what it says. Does it say idols? No. In the Hebrew, it says you'll have no other Elohim before me. Uh, is Yahweh a, a, a god of confusion? No. This is not an allegorical or figurative language text. There's no indicators of it. This is a statement. This is just a plain statement of fact. You shall have no other gods before me. Not That doesn't mean you can have other gods, just put me first. That's not what he means. This is in front of me. You'll have no other gods, period. You won't let other gods be in my sight. You'll put them away. That works, folks. That's an older English understanding of before. You know, like um, the Lion King. You know, when Simba's dad gets him up on the hill, he says, look, all the land before you, everything you can see. Well, it's before him. It's in front of him. Yahweh's telling you, you're not going to have any other gods in front of me. I don't want to see them. Put them out of the way. Get rid of them. Not just the idols, but the idea of them as well. And then this is reinforced. Joshua 24, 23. Now then, do away with the foreign gods. I looked it up. It says Elohim, which are in your midst. Now, this is because it's related to the idol. It's related to the Teflon or something. Not, it's a word very similar to, the, to a word that it's used in Hebrew. But it, it's basically a totem would be a better way to put it. Totem, just like a totem pole. It's a figurine that you cut holes in the eyes and the mouth so that your God can inhabit it. And then you can bargain with him. And it means Elohim, your other spirit will inhabit the totem. All right. It says, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to Yahweh, the God of Israel. This is Joshua talking to the Israelites saying, hey, put away the gods of Egypt, the foreign gods that are in your midst and the gods of the Canaanites. Yahweh, Yahweh alone. Put them away. In other words, out of sight. Don't let Yahweh see them. And in the Hebrew, it says, now then, do away with the foreign Elohim which are in your midst and incline your hearts to Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel. This is important. 
I did not understand this until after I'd read Dr. Heiser's book. I had always read it. This is what taught me that, yeah, every now and then I need to get into my inner linear scriptures. Um, first Kings 22 verses 20 through 22. And my, how do I pronounce that name there, Charlie? Micaiah, 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 like Isaiah, Micaiah. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Close enough. Yeah, Micaiah said, it's, it's in English, so I can't read it. Okay. I'm if it sorry. Was in Hebrew, I could read it. <laughs> Therefore hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne and all the angels of heaven standing by him on his right and his left. He's in the throne room, but the word is not angels. I put the Hebrew in there for Charlie this time. The word is Saba, hosts, the army of heaven. And who's Yeshua? He's the captain of the army of hosts. He's the captain of the angels. We might want to be careful with that. Scripture also says that that's Michael. This is where the Mormons get the idea that Jesus is Michael. They're two different people. Anyhow, or two different beings. Continues and says, And Yahweh said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall on Ramoth Gilead? And one spirit said this, while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh and said, I will entice him. And Yahweh said to him, How? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all of his prophets. And then he said, Yahweh, you shall entice him and you will also prevail. Go and do so. Part of our problem here is that this is very Aram, very Middle Eastern in its thinking. It'll jump from who's speaking without giving you very good indication. You got to pay attention to the words over there. They're very much more attentive to what you say. And if you've been over there, if you've ever been in that part of the world, they pay a lot of attention to your words, what you say, how you say it, what you don't say. They communicate better than we do, much deeper, much more richly, much more purposely. So in this passage, who decides what's going to happen? Yahweh decides we've got to get rid of Ahab. But who decides how to do it? It's a collaborative effort. These other spirits are coming up with ideas. And finally, one of them says, I know. Yahweh goes, okay, how? And the spirit says, well, I'll put a, you know, a deceiving tongue into the, all his prophets. Yahweh goes, okay, that'll work. Go do it. The spirits, the, the divine council came up with some ideas, but they're not the ones who decided what had to be done. And they're not the ones that chose the final decision as to what that was always Yahweh. He's El Elyon. He's the king. But he works through his created spirit beings, his created angels, because he chooses to. It pleases him to do so. So I was talking to Charlie before the show today. I always wondered, why did God create the world? Well, if you are a pre-existing one and you exist all by yourself, you think you might ever get lonely or bored? So he creates the angels. And he gives them free will so he can see what they're going to do. And lo and behold, at least a third of them are rebellious little hammer knockers. So he says, hey, okay, rather than just wiping you out and remaking everybody without free will, let me teach you all a lesson. Creates man, sets us up, puts us in a garden, everything's perfect, and man goes and does what, because he puts the temptations in here, man goes and does what he does. And uh, Satan goes, ha, see? <laughs> Satan even gave him a nudge to, to do wrong, because he's like, oh, I'm going to put a monkey wrench in these plans. I'm paraphrasing it, and this is just Joe's understanding. 
So then Yahweh says, okay. And things go so bad. Start the flood, start all over. Noah sets everything right. And the people go to Babel and he says, ah, dang it, sets everything right. All right, you smart Alex in the council. You think you know so better. Okay, here's a, here's a group of people for each one of you 70. You go teach them to do right. And then what happens? The council teaches them all to worship themselves rather than Yahweh. Yahweh's like, uh-huh, okay. You're all going to die for this. There's going to be a price for it. He sets everything right again and brings up, you know, Mo Abraham and then Moses. It's a repeating, like I said yesterday, it's a repeating pattern. He keeps fixing. So what's going to happen finally when the sun comes back and he sets everything right and kills everybody in the judgment day? Just like what the scriptures and the prophecies tell us will do. In the new creation, you will never, somehow or another, I don't know how, you'll have your free will, but you will never, ever want to do anything other than Yahweh's will again. So he's going to redo everything. In my way of seeing this, it's basically Yahweh saying, I'm going to use the human beings to teach you a lesson. And I'm going to work through them just like I tried to do through you. And when I show you what happens with them over and over again, over and over and again, over, because we have time different. He couldn't do this in heaven. Time works differently. So he does this. So the watchers are watching. We're like a big TV program. It could have been seconds to them in their time, the way they experience time. The, all of man's history could just be seconds to them in the way they experience time. I don't know. But real, what real TV? Yeah, real TV. So what's going to happen is when when the Messiah comes back and all this gets reset and the world gets remade, there's going to be none of this free will stuff the way where we can possibly go wrong. And both the angelic beings and the humans will have all seen why things were redone that way and we'll be able to remember the past and say, "Yeah, that mess don't work. Let's not go there again." So this is how I see it. Mm, it's kind of how the scriptures teach it. It's also kind of how some of the Apocrypha teaches it. We'll get to that. Another passage here real quick. Daniel, chapter 4, verse 17 and 24. Chapter 17, I mean, verse 17, rather. Chapter 4, verse 17. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers. Ha! And the decision is commanded on the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind. And he grants it to whomever, whomever he wishes and sets over it the lowliest, uh, lowliest of people. And he's talking about Nebuchadnezzar is going to go crazy, the, the dream. But he says the decision to what's going to be done to Nebuchadnezzar was by the decree of the angelic watchers. And the decision is commanded of the holy ones. That's it. That's parallelism. The decree of the watchers, the command of the holy ones, the Elohim, the divine council. But Joe, this was, yeah, look, verse 24, Joe, this is the interpretation, O king. This is Daniel now talking to Nebuchadnezzar. And this is the decree of the most high. That's Yahweh, El Elyon, which has come upon my Lord, the king. Well, wait a minute decree of the angelic watchers. How can that be the decree of most high? The same way it was in that passage we read from Kings. Yahweh probably said, okay, we've got to do something with Nebuchadnezzar. What do we do? The watchers, the angels all came up with ideas and Yahweh probably finally said, I like that one. Let's do that. See what happens. So Yahweh actually decreed it, even though the watchers can be said to have come up with the idea too. Not the idea to do it, and not the final idea of which one they're going to do, but they dreamed up what to do and how to do it. And Yahweh, you know, a whole bunch of different and Yahweh goes, I like that one. He's still in charge.
That's what's in these two passages. He is still the most high, but this worked through the angels. Did y'all ever read this passage? Acts 7.53. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. There are at least two other passages in the New Testament that tells you that on Mount Sinai, the law was given to Moses by angels. Well, wait a minute now. This time I know you're wrong, Joe. This time I know. Says so in, in the Pentateuch, in, in you know, Deuteronomy. It says God gave the law to, to, to Moses. Yeah, it does. Just like in Daniel, it said God, Yahweh, decreed what was going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. Just like in Kings, it says Yahweh decided what was going to happen to Ahab. But in Kings and in Daniel and in Acts, and I think it's also Hebrews and one of Peter's, it's a couple other places, Heiser has it for you. Heiser tells you, he shows you. It's um, several other times that it says the angels did that on Mount Sinai. Do you think maybe wherever Yahweh is, his divine counsel was, and they were helping Yahweh to deliver the law? That would fit. Otherwise, Scripture's broken. It would mean that Luke got it wrong, and we can't trust a thing Luke says. Well, see, I know Luke got it right. So that's not the problem. In his book, this is from the Kindle edition. This is the Unseen Realm. It says, the odds are very high, and he's talking about Psalm 82, that you've never heard that Psalm 82 plays a vital role in the biblical theology, including New Testament theology. I've been a Christian for over 30 years, and I've never heard a sermon on it. There are many other passages whose content is curious or, quote, doesn't make sense, and so are abandoned or glossed over. Here's a sampling of them. I'm not going to read them, but there's those on your screen. It's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Then nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 20, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39 of them. And he goes, don't consider that a mere catalog. That is the list. That's a deliberate list of all those passages, which will be examined in this book. All are conceptually interconnected. Concept, see? Concept. And all help illuminate the more commonly studied passages, those that do make sense. He says, look them up for a glimpse of what you'll be what we'll be talking about. <laughs> I did when I first ran into that book. I'm like, holy cow. Okay. Well, hard to understand very hard to understand everything else in your scriptures if you don't understand that the divine counsel is in the background. And we will start with this when we come back. This is important. We'll come back to that passage. So let's wrap up this first hour. Divine counsel worldview. Yahweh has a heavenly counsel. He chooses to have it. They are created beings, angels. They're not gods in the sense that Yahweh is God. They're not eternal. All They're not gods like in the pantheon of Greece and Rome. He's not a pantheon of actual gods. He's, he's in a pantheon of Elohim, spirits that live in the heavenly, in the spirit world. He's El Elyon. He's the one who made them all, 
remember, we've already covered this in, in our series here. Yahweh's transcendent. He's outside of space and time. These spirit beings are trapped in the heavenly space and time. They can't go outside where Yahweh is, but he can enter into their realm, just like he did into ours as flesh. So he's got this divine counsel that he created, and he gives them all roles and jobs, and he chooses to work through them. And they've got free spirit, free, free will. If they didn't, Satan couldn't have rebelled. Well, God foreordained him to rebel. That's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures speak of Satan as having free will because he decides. He makes decisions on his own. Otherwise, the scriptures are describing a God that lies and is of deception and, and confusion and chaos. And that is not Yahweh. So Yahweh made us with free will. And he chooses to work through his created beings, his children, sons of mine, sons of Yahweh, sons of Elohim. And he's done the same thing with us. So if he creates in heaven and he works by a council, we would expect it to be down here. There are echoes of how he thinks. This is what science was all about. How does Yahweh think? How, how does he work? His ways are not ours. Ours are not his. Let's learn more about him by studying his creation. He has a divine council worldview. And the spirit world is very real, as real as this one, if not more so. And we as believers are expected to walk as though it's that real. When we say, yeah, I trust God, and then you go ahead and you do your own thing. You know, we've covered Abraham did this. Um, Jacob does this. Several other people do this in, in, in the scriptures. They don't want to wait on God. They're not going to wait on Yahweh. They're going to do it themselves. Always screws things up. And then Yahweh fixes it. I make all things work for the good of those who believe and trust in me. And paraphrasing his words through Paul. So he takes our screw-ups and he makes them work for us, but he's still correcting our boo-boos because that's for his own glory. He's going to have his way done, even though we're allowed to do whatever we want to do. It doesn't Just because you have free will doesn't mean the results are going to be what you want. Free will lets you do what you want to do. It doesn't mean you get to have the result you want. That's another one of these things we don't think about. So this is the divine counsel in the supernatural worldview. When we come back, we're going to talk about how it affects this book, Reversing Hermon. Oh, boy, does it get good from here. Because this, folks, this is the gospel. The gospel that many of your preachers don't even know about, let alone preach. And Heiser was on to it. And it's in your scriptures. It's in the Gospel of John. See, in six minutes, make sure you're back in your pew. You don't want to miss this because this is where all the good eating is going to come in. See you in six. <music>
And we're back. Okay, real quick. Um, forgot to show you something. So let me just pop this up here real quick before we keep going in the next part of the show. This is um this is a graphic that I had meant to show you in the last hour. Divine Council, this is how it works. Um, basically Yahweh, you know, the Godhead at the top. Then you got sons of God, sons of Yahweh, Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9, princes of Daniel 10, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. These are divine beings, they're glorified, divinized, angelified, whatever. Um, occasionally they're messengers or whatever. And then at the very bottom, you have just all the other Elohim and angels. If you are interested, um, Dr. Heiser has a book on both demons and angels and nothing except what's in the Bible, what's really in the Bible. And he goes through it all for you. And it's very interesting to find out that a lot of what, like no wings on the angels. Well, yeah, the seraphim have wings. Uh, those aren't actually, th th that's a higher order of angel. Those are seraphim. So, you know, you got to be careful with this. Um, there's other things going on. Whoops, did we freeze up? Yeah, we yeah, are we're, having, we're having, we're having internet issues. We're having internet issues again here today. Hold on with us. We'll try to work through them. Comment on the board from Arctic Tortoise. Okay, everybody, it's time to sign up for Wednesday break Charlie camera where you get to watch him dance to the break every Wednesday. <laughs> we'll become a subscriber. <laughs> he does. He sincerely dances. <laughs> we're not going to have that camera because y'all might actually see me acting a fool around here. And we're not going to have that because. <sighs> like Arctic Tortoise stumbled in on me one time when we were kids and he goes, caught me dancing. He goes, what's with that Bobby Brown crap? <laughs> I don't think he'll remember that, but we're not going to do that. All right. Let's get going with part two and hope the internet will stick with us and allow us to keep going. One of the things I can do here, Charlie, is I don't need to share the screen anymore. So I'm going to start right here. Conspiracy to kill Jesus. This is uh, John chapter 11, verses 47 through 53. It says, therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council meeting and they were saying, what are we doing in regard to the fact that this man is performing many signs? Talking about Jesus. If we let him go on like this, all the people will believe in him. And Romans will come and take over both our place and our nation. We're worried about their prestige, power, and everything. And then the nation second. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all nor are you talk, taking into account that it is in your best interest that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish instead. Now, he did not say this on his own, but as he was high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And pay attention, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. The prophecy is that his through his death and resurrection, he will gather together into one nation, the children of Yahweh, who are scattered abroad. That's not Jew. That's not lost house of, of you know, Israel, the, the northern kingdom. That's not just the believing Gentiles. That's all the children of Yahweh. Remember earlier we read about how inheritance is the nations, you know, Yahweh's inheritance is the nations. He's going to recover all of the nations. That's what this is. 
the Messiah died so that all who believe in in the Father, who trust in a living trust in Yahweh, can be gathered into one nation. That's the rock that strikes Nebuchadnezzar's statue at the feet, destroys all these other kingdoms, fills the whole earth. It's the kingdom of Yahweh, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of Elohim, whatever you want to call it, the different euphemisms. That is the gospel. The reversing of all that has gone wrong in restoring Eden. <laughs> there's no um, there's no mistaking that I'm right about this because in in the Gospels, when Jesus comes, he says it, it tells us clearly in uh, Matthew, uh, Mark, and in um, no Matthew, Luke, and in John. It's, anyhow, it, it comes. He said he comes teach, saying, "Repent." The gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, not the gospel of, I want Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. Please enter my life and be my Lord and Savior. Get me dunked. I'm good to go. That's nowhere in it. That, that's not in your Bible. All who call on the name of Jesus will be, or Yahweh and Jesus will be saved. Read Paul better. Read him as a Hebrew observant, I mean, a Torah observant Hebrew. All who call on the Shem of Yahweh or of the Messiah. Shem. Joe, you're trying to use magic words of Hebrew now. That's not what's in the Greek. I'm going to use the Hebrew word Shem specifically because it forces you to think differently. If you understand name as an old English word definition, it works. It's the same. It means the same thing as Shem. But in our modern world, we don't think that way anymore. But if I say Shem, the Hebrew name or Hebrew word, now you got to think different. What the heck does Shem mean? Shem means the character, nature, the, the essence of the Messiah and or who is Torah. So anything you ask in my name, Jesus, I need a million dollars. I'm going to get my million. No, that's not in keeping with his Shem. So anything I ask in the name of the Messiah had better be in keeping with righteousness, Torah, or you're not going to get it. It wasn't too long ago that... If you disgraced your father's name, it was a big deal. That's his reputation. It's his reputation. It's the reputation of not only him, but his family. Yes. And that that thinking still applied in their world. So whatever you ask in the Shem of the father, who is greater than the son, but you have to ask it in, not the name. That does not mean, well, the name of Jesus uh, and this is where the Hebrew roots, no, it's Yah, Yeshua, no, it's Yahushua. And we start arguing, oh, that's not what it says. In his Shem, in his character nature, in his honor. If you ask that, that's what the scriptures are teaching us. This is why you're going to see me start using, in just a few specific cases, you're going to see me start using the Hebrew words. I want to force those who are studying with me to start thinking of this more biblically accurately. By the way, there are several chapters in here where Heiser goes over exactly that. He explains a lot of stuff in that book. That book is dense. It's good. You should read it. Now, we're in this book, Reversing Hermon. Oh, boy. 
We are talking cosmic geography here. Um, and you've run across this before. It's in your scriptures. But Mount Hermon is close to the area known as Bashan. And one of the Psalms, it talks about the bulls of Bashan surround me. You know, the Psalm where he's stretched out and all this stuff. That's spiritual language. The bulls of Bashan were around him. That's connected to Canaanite worship. The worship of, of the fallen angels and, and, the, and the false gods and all this stuff. So in that Psalm, where it's speaking as though it's, it's Yeshua, David is, on the cross. Yeshua probably saw spiritual, the, the, the Satan might have even been there. Yeshua probably saw them, all these unclean spirits around him. The people didn't. Just like when you see enemies of the far north, you know, the, the north, enemies of Israel to the far north. Rosh is going to come from the far north. Yeah, you think biblical north, you know, I mean, a calen, uh, map north, geographical north, you know, north pole. No, this is, this is spiritual geography. A far north is just means where all the enemies come from. Because historically, that's where Israel usually got, got invaded from, was from the northern direction. So you think a far north is where all enemies come from. It's also the seat of um, Antioch, the seat of Satan, is a far north. It, it happens to be north of Israel, but over time it became a saying in their mind. It's just evil always comes from the north. So it became like a, an, an idiom or a proverb. So Dr. Heiser will help you with the geographic um, thinking here, spiritual geography. It's interesting. Hamas is in northern Gaza. Yes. Just some. So reversing Hermon. Let's go over something real quick. Right here, this picture, up in the upper right-hand side, you'll see Mount Hermon. This is in the region of where Jesus and the apostles were when he says, uh, upon this rock, I'll build my church. Everybody thinks Peter. Well, there are no commas in Greek or Hebrew. It says, you are Peter and upon this rock. So everybody thinks he's talking about Peter. What if I put a comma after Peter? You're Peter. But upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Where were they standing at the time? They were on the foot of Mount Hermon. Why is that important? Because in their day, this is thought to be where the fallen angels, the watchers of Genesis 6, 1 through 4, where they first stepped foot on earth. They stepped foot on Mount Hermon. Mountains are thought to be where the gods live, you know, where the Elohim live. The garden, uh, the, the, the location of Yahweh, his, his throne room, his court is said to be in a lush garden. But then again, on the very next verse of Ezekiel, it says it's on a mountain. You can't have gardens on top of a mountain, folks. It doesn't work. It's all spiritual language. It's, it's metaphoric. But in this case, they step down on the mountain. It's also where the gates of Hades were thought to be. The gates to the underworld were thought to be located in Mount Hermon. So guess what that means? And upon this rock, this mountain, I'll build my church. Upon the gates of Hades, I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against me. So he's telling him, he's going to, he's telling the world, I'm going to go on the offensive and I will build my, my kingdom, my ecclesia over top of the fortress, the stronghold of Satan, of the gates of Hades. It's spiritual geography language. 
and this is not um this is not a coincidence and this is not to be taken lightly now i use this map don't pay too much attention along i don't know what's going on i just use this because it's very good topographical and you know you 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 can see nazareth is down here to the left center of the picture sea of galilee i want to show you something these people did a really good job with how they do this up here in the very top of the picture is Mount Hermon. You can see it over the Jordan River Valley and everything. It's it's a high point. You can see it from a lot of parts of the Holy Land. But now this picture, this is also very important. Up at the top, Mount Hermon is almost at the very top center of the picture. It's hard to read, I know. And blowing this up is not going to help much. But Mount Hermon is up at the very top. And then it says East Menasa or Menashe. Right underneath it, it says Bashan. The bulls of Bashan. The bulls of Bashan surround me. Why what what's 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 the deal with this, Joe? That that's demonic territory, folks. The, remember the prophecies about um Dan. It says Dan leaps from Bashan. And worth Dan was the very first tribe to become apostate, and it was the worst. It was the worst apostate. And people think that Dan has been left out of the book of Revelation for that reason. And some connection to that. But Bashan is right there, you know, unclean spirit land, devil land, demon land, is right there with Mount Hermon, or Mount Hermon is right there in the area of Bashan. Just to the, oh, look, a far north. This is all geographic, this spiritual geography language, folks. And Dr. Heiser helped me to see and understand that. Here again, um, let me blow this up. Mount Hermon at the top there, and then that whole region of Bashan. Chase those rabbits sometime in your studies. Look up Bashan and look up Mount Hermon and look up Dan. Now, this gets us here. Corruption of mankind. This Spiritual geography, cosmic geography. Cosmic being spirit world. That's how Heiser refers to it. Now we're about to get into an area that lots of Christians will chase with me but they'll chase it in the wrong way with the wrong spirit. Pay attention, please. The corruption of mankind, Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Now it came about when mankind began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them and that the sons of God, the sons of Elohim, saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then Yahweh said, my spirit will not remain with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of Elohim, God, came in to the daughters of mankind and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So once again, we're thinking real men, real human beings, sons of God. Hmm. Better be careful with that. Because that's not what the rest of your scriptures are going to imply. This is giant language. And Dr. Heister will hand walk you through this in great detail in his book, The Unseen Realm. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time doing that. If you want to go through that, he'll go through it. But he will also show you all the different clans that are connected to the, the, the giants. The, um, the Anakin and then a couple of others. The, the, there's a whole bunch of clans. Pretty much everybody living in canon is connected to the giants, the bloodlines of the giants. 
which is one of the reasons that the Israelites were told to go kill the Canaanites. All of them. Everything that breathed. Now, Heiser will cover some of this for you because this is Enochian material. Enoch is not scripture. Heiser will tell you Enoch is not scripture. But Enoch will fill in some of the second temple period thinking for you. The book, first book of Enoch, Enoch 1. I don't want you to go running down Enoch like some people do. Please don't do this. Some people are going to get lost in Enoch because it fascinates them. It's not scripture. Heiser will help you keep it in. If you study Enoch with Heiser, I'll have no worry for you. He will keep telling you. This is just background information. It's just a edification. This is not scripture. He will tell you that all over and over and over again. Just what's going on in their minds. You know, when, he, when Jesus says, as in the days of Noah, this entire book just jumped into their head. The book of Enoch. Heiser will help you through this. Book of Enoch. He also has two companion versions here, and I'll show them to you in a minute. The, the Book of Enoch Companion Commentary, and he'll help walk you through it. Enochian material also holds the Book of the Giants and Watchers. So I'll show these to you in a minute on the screen. If you're going to go here, go here, like I've told you before, with somebody who knows what the heck they're doing. Heiser is the best I've found. But look, he's not alone. But Dr. Heiser will tell you at the very beginning of his videos, and he tells you in his book, nothing in here is his. Nothing is new to him. Nothing that's in this book is new to the believers or to the church. It's just been forgotten or ignored. He brings it back. He reminds the church, this has always been understood, or at least always was understood. What we have here in Genesis 1-4, and there's very good reason to believe that other prophets in the Bible affirm this, is that the giants were real. It's not translated Nephthalim in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is older than the Dead Sea Scrolls. Septuagint translates it as giants, gigants. And Dr. Heiser will walk you through the language. And he'll also walk you through where you get Nephthalim from. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's a loan word from the Aramaic, more than likely. And he walks you through the nuts and bolts of the etymology of the word. So if you want somebody to prove this to you, go read the book. You'll also find a video from Dr. Heiser about it as well. He covers a lot of this for us. You just got to go hunt it up. Should I have that muted? I hope I did. Where are we going to go to next? Well, let me show you where some of this echoes in your scriptures. 1 Corinthians 11.10. Paul's talking about women in their hair. He says, therefore, the woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Head covering. Why? Heiser's going to tell you there's two things going on here. First of all, your hair in the ancient times was thought to be one of your sex organs. Yes. The longer your hair, the more fertile you were. This is one of the reasons that long hair was no good on a man because it meant you were less fertile. You, you weren't as virile. You weren't going to have as many children. This is why long hair on a woman was thought to be desirable. So when you see all these pictures of the long, curly-haired Jesus, that's a romanization of the character of the Messiah. That's Zeus 
A lot of people tell me, no, it is. yes, it is. Yes, it is. If you go look up, I, I, I wanted to look this up. I forgot to do this for you. There's a, there's a story, Heaven is for Real, about a young boy who died and supposedly went to heaven, and his father was a pastor and questioned him and all this stuff. And he comes back. And apparently, he still has trouble living because he still wants to go back to heaven, and this, he's, he's in his early 20s now. But he had a description of Jesus that matched what a, what a Hebrew would look like, short hair, curly locks at the side with his beard. And there's a young girl, like she's an immigrant. I think she's Indian or whatever. She painted a picture of Jesus. She was not Christian or whatever too much. Never heard any of this. She just painted a picture of Jesus that she saw in a dream. And I think this young boy's name was Colin or Colin or something like that, Colin. But when he sees the picture, he goes, that's Jesus. Well, that would match what you'd expect a Hebrew to look like. And by the way, he's got reddish hair. For those of you who understand what I just said, you can connect the dots. I'm not going to fill it in for you right now. But what you make of that, I don't know. It could just be an anecdotal story, but the picture she painted would match what I'd expect to see from a Hebrew. And Colin agreed with it. And he supposedly saw Jesus and spent some time with him when he was dead while he was on the operating table. I don't know. I know this. I know that the long-haired hippie Jesus that we see, that is not what a Hebrew man would look like. I shared that coin, that Roman coin showing you Hebrews, curly at the sides, short hair. Not what he'd look like. The second thing that's going on here, it's not just a sex organ. This is to keep you women modest so that the angels aren't tempted to repeat the sins of the watchers. It is more than likely one of the things that's in the back of Paul's mind right here, because otherwise there's no sense saying because of the angels, because of the watchers. Hmm. Individually, one-on-one, -on -one, none of this makes sense. When you know the concept you're looking for, it does start to make sense. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God, Yahweh, did not spare the angels when they sinned, uh, if Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is not talking about angels, if it's talking about men, then what the heck is Peter talking about? Peter is probably referencing Genesis 6, 1 through 4. So God didn't spare them when they sinned, but he cast them into Tartaru. We've translated it to hell. Well, it might be, but he said Tartaru in the Greek and committed them to the pits of darkness where he holds them for judgment. That's the pit, the bottomless pit in the book of Revelation. Tartaru, Strong's Concordance G5020 or GK's Concordance 5434 to cast or thrust to the Tartarus or Gehana. Could be hell. It's more than that. Eh, a picture of the Tartarus, right? The Tartarus in Greek mythology is the deep abyss that is used as a dungeon of the torment and suffering for the wicked and the prisoners of, of the Titans. It's the prison of the Titans. Tartarus is the place where, according to Plato's Gorgias, souls are judged after death and where the wicked received divine punishment. Hmm. This is all going to be in connection with this. Now, the Greek mythology 
is mythology. It's a morphing of what the reality is. So this is the fallen angels and their allies that aren't in the pit deceiving the people, you know, the mankind into thinking, oh, well, you know, that evil God, evil Yahweh dude, by different names, he imprisoned all of us. It's just so unjust, et cetera, et cetera. The Titans, pre-Olympian gods. This is important. I want to show you something. I'm not teaching this as reality. I'm teaching you that this is where the mythology comes from. Greek Titan God family. There's 13 of them. What? Yeah, 13. One splits. How? Originally, there were 12, and then there become 13. Where does that pattern show up anywhere in your mind, folks? 12 tribes of Israel. Now there's 13. That would be because this is the sons of Yahweh and the divine council teaching man wrong. And this is why they're going to be condemned. They made up their own stories, their own mythology. They're trying to deceive men so that men will worship them rather than Yahweh. That line of thinking traces. It fits through the concept and it works all the way through scripture. So now I've got a note in here. In all probability, Peter is not affirming the reality of Tartaru, but rather he was likely using a popular reference to make a theological point. Likely. It could be that what Peter's actually doing is telling you Tartaru's real. That's the lake of fire, the pit of fire, but not the way you Greeks and Romans think of it. Either way, he's doing a correction, more than likely. Now, here's the problem with some of this. Yeshua embraces the idea of Gehana. Now, a lot of people will say, no, he's just talking about the pit, the, the, the valley of Gehana where the fire is and everything. That's not what that's not what John's talking about in the book of Revelation. He's talking about the lake of fire in the book of Revelation. He's not talking about the valley of Gehana, and neither is Jesus. Yeshua is talking about the, the pit of fire, the lake of fire from the book of Revelation. It's obvious when you look at the context. What it is is the people who say he's just talking about a physical place, they want to do away with eternal condemn, condemnation and everything. They want, to, they want it so that when you die, if you don't go to heaven, you just wink out of existence forever and ever. Amen. Okay, that doesn't seem to be what Jesus is talking about. It doesn't seem to be what the book of Revelation describes. But okay, if that makes you feel better that you're just going to wink out of existence, because I'll be honest with you folks, if that's what the Bible teaches, you might as well eat, drink, and be merry, because it's not going to matter. You go through judgment, you know, okay, well, you know, wink me out of existence. What do I care? I won't be around to worry about it anymore. There's nothing to keep you from doing evil. Not from man's perspective. And why would the angels give a rat's rip if they're going to just wink out of existence? Except for one thing. Death, in any form, to a Hebrew, is the number one enemy. So, could be a cultural thing. Don't know. All I know is that Yeshua seems to embrace the idea of Gehana as the lake of fire. The reason I bring this up is that's a Nakian material. You will not find that in the Old Testament. So where do I search the Old Testament like Paul tells me to find that? Well, there's a boo-boo here. What doesn't happen in the Old Testament time? The cross and the resurrection. That happens after the Old Testament has sealed. 
So I can't find anything about that in the Old Testament. I can find the foretelling, the prophecy and the foreshadow, but I can't find anything about the event, what happens afterwards. That lake of fire may have been created when the cross and when the crucifixion was happening. Don't know. But I'm aware of this. All of that material comes from Enoch in its second, second temple period um, thinking. And it is in their head. And when you understand, when you know what's in the Enochian material, it's worth going through this if you're going to go through it with somebody who understands this stuff well and knows it's not scripture. It's not equal to the Bible. If you go through it with Dr. Heiser, I'm not going to worry about you. He's going to keep guardrails up for you. If you go through Enoch, these are two books that you can buy from Dr. Heiser where he walks you through it, explains what's going on. Book of the Giants, Book of the Watchers. All of this is about reversing Hermon. Taking all of the breaches. There would have been several breaches. There's a breach in the, in the fall in the garden. There's a breach at the Tower of Babel in the dividing of the nations. And there's a breach again in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. These are breaches that if you were a second temple period per, uh, Hebrew, Torah observant Hebrew, you're going to say, yeah. These things all need to be corrected. And they expected the Messiah to correct these things. Well, that's what the reversal is. That's what Paul talks about, the restoration of all things. That's the gospel. The restoration of the kingdom of Yahweh. Not just Ezekiel 37, putting all the sticks back together, bringing both houses back into the house of Israel, one house, house of Jacob, with all the Gentiles grafted in. We read the other passage where Yahweh was talking about inheritance of the nations. I think that's in Psalm 82. I'm going to inherit them. They're mine. I'm going to get them back. I had them before Babel. I'm going to get them back. They're coming back to me. They're mine. This is the, the, the mountain of Yahweh, the kingdom of Yahweh that's going to spread throughout the whole planet. This is all Nebuchadnezzar. Yesterday, one of the reasons I needed to do yesterday was explain, trace the concept. When you trace the concept, all these passages start falling into place. So the Anakian material, when Yeshua says, as in the days of Noah, he just brings all of that mess up in their head. This is important. It's in the background of the New Testament. And once you know what you're looking for, you'll see many, many echoes of it. Not just one or two or three or four. I didn't, I handpicked a few that are the most obvious. Heiser walks you through a bunch of them bunch of them by the time you're done with the book i everybody that i have met who objects to dr heiser's way of understanding the scripture none of them have actually read the book well i'll take that back one i think did but he didn't bother checking it and testing it he read it to see how he could object that's not how you read somebody's argument you read it to understand it when you can give your other opponent your opponent's argument as well as they do, now you understand it. Now I'll listen to you object. If you don't understand it as well as he does, I don't know that you even understand your own objections. You have to know what you're objecting to. That's why, like I said yesterday, I'm reading a whole bunch of books right now that are written by people who oppose where I'm at in my understanding, vehemently oppose me. And I'm reading it to understand their perspective. I'm reading it slow. I'm reading it deliberately. All of these books. I've, I've, I'm 
I'm one third of the way through another book. And I, if I finish that up before the end of, of Saturday, I'll have put four books and a pamphlet under my belt in one week. And I got to keep up this pace because I've got a little over a dozen books I need to read before I start with a project that Charlie and I are going to take on. So I'm reading to see what the other side believes and why. I have to understand it. I could, if I wanted to, sound just like a good little progressive or a Marxist. I can sound like Adolf Hitler if I want to. I understand them. I had to understand Dr. Heiser. And this is why every objection to his, his understandings that he shares that I've ever encountered, except for one individual I got in my mind, every one of them, I know they didn't read the book. I can tell by their objections. They didn't read it because like that objection was tackled already. That one was explained. This one was handled. And the guy who read the book, he creates straw man arguments out of what Dr. Heiser actually says. That guy, I really have a problem with straw man is a form of false witness. So why do I want to share this with you today? Get yourself back into the spiritual worldview. Start believing that the spirit world is as real as this material world, because the Bible does. The Bible teaches it that way. Understand the divine council worldview, because it'll help. Like Heiser said, there's some passages in there. Most of us gloss over. Well, that's crazy. It don't make no sense. Once you understand the divine council worldview, they do make sense. Understand that the giants were real. Some people have taken them and gone crazy with them. The Bible tells you that they weren't 365 feet tall like some irresponsible individuals writing books just because they want to have a name for themselves and make money. Scripture tells us that these giants were somewhere in the neighborhood of between 6 and 11 to 13 feet tall, somewhere in that neighborhood. Coincidentally, we've found skeletons throughout the world of about that tight height. We're also told that these Nephilim, they tend to have six fingers and double row of teeth and a few other things. Coincidentally, some of that stuff is referenced actually in the scriptures. Um, Goliath is a Nephilim. Doesn't call him a Nephilim. Says he's a giant. Says he's from this tribe. Well, that tribe is a tribe of Nephilim. Heiser will show you that. He's also got brothers. And one of his brothers is thought to have survived. You're going to have the Nephilim bloodline somewhere in this world right now because they were not all eradicated. They're supposed to keep being able to come back. I don't know what you want to do with that. Um, oh, criminy, I can't think of his name. I, I have a brain block with this guy. He's the, he becomes a great hunter after Babel. Charlie, what the heck? Nimrod? Nimrod? Nimrod. Nimrod. I got it. What a Nimrod. Anyhow, he's thought to be the first of the return of the Nephilim. He's also thought to be Gilgamesh. Clay Toller, aren't the fallen angels buried under the Euphrates River? I don't know. There's lots of mythology on that. That's not mentioned in scripture. That, that would be probably from the Apocrypha. But I know this much. Uh, Peter says that they're trapped in the Tartarus. And I know that the gates to Hades was thought to be at Mount Hermon, but the Euphrates River is not all that far from there. So it could be that the gates of Hades lead you down underneath the Euphrates River. So it could be a case of both, Clay. Um, 
I don't study these things that deeply because they're not scripture. I study them enough to know what I need to know so that I better understand my scriptures. That's why I study them. I have not studied the Apocrypha other than a little bit with the book of Enoch. And I did Enoch with Dr. Heiser. I, I've got his books. I've never read his books uh, um, on Enoch. I've never read his books on Enoch for a reason. I have his videos. So I have him there side by side, holding my hand, keeping me from going off trail. So y'all notice what I just said. So the, 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 the people out there who think I'm a know-it-all that think I can do everything all on my own. Notice what I just said. I found a teacher that I trusted that was an authority in this area. And I let him hold my hand and walk me through it. Now I did so with my Bible right there. And I checked what he was telling me. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Actually it was a computer. I had Bible gateway up. I got two screens always at home. So one of them, I can watch Heiser and the other one, I can check him live. And I did. So Clay told her, so if the river dries up, are they going to be released? Well, the river has pretty much already dried up. They're finding ruins under the river they never knew existed. Does that release them? I don't know. Um, I have a sneaky suspicion the pit has already been opened. Now, are the three unclean spirits like frogs that are trapped in that area? Have they been released? I don't know. I, you're asking me to get into an area where I'll get myself in a lot of trouble if I told you my personal beliefs. Let me just put it this way, folks. For those who have ears to hear, I think he's nigh at the door and knocking and getting ready to warm up the eastern sky, if that makes any sense. Okay. Keep an eye on the east. You know, one of these days it might split open with a blinding flash. Um, I would expect that to come somewhere in the fall around the feasts. Not that anybody cares about that anymore. You know, no man knows the day or the time or the hour or whatever. Y'all do realize that that's a saying that's connected to the Hebrew wedding which incidentally, that's why he's coming back to marry his bride. And it's also connected to the fall feasts, which incidentally is the one of the feasts that he hasn't fulfilled in the flesh yet. Gee, I wonder if no man knows the day or the hour actually doesn't mean you don't know the day and the hour. It means look for me in the fall feasts. I'm coming back to get my bride. Or it could mean all three, except for after the book of Revelation when the scroll was opened. He does know the day and the hour now, because that's been set. Hmm. Concept will help if you start studying it. Concept will help a lot. Concept is the framework in which you hang all the individual passages that fill in the picture. Think of it this way. The concept is the frame of the jigsaw puzzle. Once you have all the edges in place, it's easier to put the rest of the pictures and pieces of the puzzle in place to make the rest of the picture. I brought Dr. Heiser to you specifically because he will help put your general framework for how to approach your scriptures in place. And he will show you some of what's going on in the back room that's just assumed you know it. Things that we have lost because of time and culture. He'll help you put it back in place. He knows what he's doing. He's proven that to me. I may not know everything he knows. I may not, and I don't have time to study it. But one thing I have learned over my lifetime, I know when I'm talking to somebody who knows what they know and when I'm talking to somebody who's trying to baffle me with bull, th there's a pattern to the way they talk. 
Heiser knows it. Um, he does these other videos on YouTube. You'll find uh, Pop123 or Pop Culture123 or something or other. He likes to do refutations of this guy from the Ancient Aliens series on History Channel. Ancient Aliens, the, the guy did one episode where he's talking about, look, there's this giant alien and here's his spaceship in the background because it's got this little, that kind of looks like a, you know, just a simplified spaceship and you got all these people and he's taking them captive or something or other crazy haired boys talking about this is alien invasions and they're taking people captive off outer space are going to eat them. I don't know. But Dr. Heiser is just absolutely brutal with this guy in this case, because it's a, a famous still, it's a carving. It's well known. You, you'd recognize it probably if you see it. Heiser sets it up, tells the guy's argument faithfully, tells you what the guy is claiming. And then he turns around and he says, but this guy would just bother to learn how to read Sanskrit. And then Dr. Heiser reads the inscription that's on the Stelleth. And apparently it's an Assyrian king. He's drawn big to show you that he's big in stature. And then he, he is taking captives because it's a memorial of a war that he won. And then the supposed rocket in the background, that's just a mountain, which is an ancient Near East symbol of a kingdom. So the kingdom of this king conquered Yasu, who, what's his face over here, and took all these prisoners, which is exactly what the Sanskrit said. Oh, no, it's ancient aliens. Dr. Heiser loves to do this. And he, he, he reads hieroglyphics. He does another one of these where the ancient alien guy was saying, look, a helicopter. Dr. Heiser says, no, ancient whiteout that, that's fallen apart over time. And he explains and he shows you in great detail. And then all of a sudden, oh, well, this makes a lot of sense now. It's not a helicopter. It's two different hieroglyphs that have been superimposed over each other. You know, one of them, they probably put clay over the old one and drew the new one in and part of the clay fell away. And now you've got a new hieroglyph that looks like something entirely different. He explains it and he shows you how it happened. He knows what he's doing. And that's why I trust him. I've very seldom, and he will, if he makes a boo-boo, he'll tell you when he's crosses into the area of opinion he does exist i've modeled a lot of my teaching after him he tells you when it's opinion he tells you why he believes what he believes he shows you in the scriptures he points you to the scripture to the son to the father not to himself he backs up everything he says with scripture or he documents it tells you where to go find it he can tell the other side's story as good as they can sometimes better it is everything i want a teacher to be and he's gone Luckily for us, there are hundreds of hours of video, thousands of hours of audio of him explaining what he's learned. If you, one of the things that you're going to probably find fascinating, he's going to show you in the first half of this book, the two Yahwehs. There's possibly three, but I know there are two. They're in your scriptures. See that government Joe there. I'm not, can't read that man. He's talking about polytheism again. He must've been a, no, no, there are two Yahweh's in the burning bush. The Hebrew makes it very clear. He shows you there are two Yahweh's in the story of Gideon sitting on the hill, talking to Yahweh. There are two of them. He shows it to you very clearly walks you through it like a kindergartner. And I didn't mind when he did that to me because it's the first time I had ever encountered that. I don't read the Bible in the Hebrew. But this is one of the things that woke me up to. I have got to be careful with how my English Bible was translated. Who translated it? Now you're understanding why I'm in an NASB Bible. 
for the most part, it is a literal translation. Why is that important? It takes a lot, not all, but it takes a lot of the leeway away from the translators. They don't have as many options for how to translate something when it's a word-for-word literal translation. They can add glosses to try and make sense of it, and the glosses words that they add that are not in the original. But like we, we saw today, sons of God. When it says sons of El or sons of Elohim, sometimes it says sons of Israel. When it actually said Elohim, they were trying to translate it the best they could. But the reason I caught that one originally was because I knew at the time that that one's being referenced, the nation of Israel and the people of Israel don't exist yet. So I'm like, whoa, 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 stop. Let me go back and see what's really behind in that one in the real language. And I found out it says sons of Elohim. So I'm learning that if I want to study something in depth, I'm going to have to know how to use my interlinear Bible and the concordances and the lexicons. Look up every place that word is made, you know, listed. That's a concordance. Then go find the lexicon. That's the definition. A lot of work. Yeah. But worth it. Clay Toller, did King James also write books on demonology? I don't think King James wrote anything that way. King James commissioned the Bible. He didn't write it. There was a group of uh, religious scholars who translated the the Bible from the Masoretic texts um, into the King James Bible. Um, Like I said, they were commissioned by King James, but I don't think they did anything on demonology. Not that I'm aware of. Um, Arctic Tortoise, if we believe in the Trinity, would there be, would there not be three father, son, and Holy spirit and the form they take? That's a really hairy rabbit with big, ugly yellow fangs and red eyeballs. There's a way to read the Hebrew and, and I've actually got Charlie and another one of your classmates trying to still in the background, help me crunch on this. It comes down to the Melech, the Memra. And Yahweh, the Memrek of Yahweh, which is the word of Yahweh, the Melak of Yahweh, which is the angel of Yahweh, and Yahweh. All three are mentioned in the in the Old Testament. All three seem to call each other Yahweh. We haven't nailed that down yet, and I don't know that we can. I know this. When Abraham meets the three men on their way to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, even the secularists at, I think it was Stanford, University, if I remember, Stanford or Princeton, even they recognized that all three were Yahweh's. They were all three Yahweh's figures. And there are passages in the Bible that when the angels are there, it's uh, in the Hebrew, it says Yahweh called down the fire from Yahweh. Well, at that time, it is very likely that Yahweh is still eating or still visiting with Abraham. We don't know. It could be that that Yahweh went back up into heaven and then that's the Yahweh that sends down the fire for the other two Yahweh. This is the point in that Charlie pop in here for a minute. Cause I know you've read through this um, in the Hebrew, in this passage there with Sodom and Gomorrah, the Yahweh's get a little confusing, don't they? Uh, yeah. Quickly. And, and this is, yeah, it's a big scholarly debate over that. And it's too. never been solved. No. Okay, and then there was the one other passage where I think it's talking with Gideon. We have the angel of Yahweh, the the word of Yahweh, and Yahweh. 
that's a big jumbled mess with the Yahweh's in that passage too. You remember that one? I don't remember that one off the top of my head, but this is, we might not be Gideon. It might be is one of the prophets where he's going to go eat and he's, Yahweh wakes him up because he needs more food because to make the, well, that's the angel wakes him up, but also the words talking to him. And then we, there's passage point. The point here, folks, is I've asked Charlie to read through a book where this has been mentioned. And the, 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 the takeaway from this is even if you're a scholar who understands Hebrew, this is a mess. Is it not, Charlie? Yeah, yeah, it is. And I think this is one of those things that we have to take on faith. And for me, this is my way of making this logical and fit into my, my viewpoint is we have to not limit Yahweh. Yes. And we have to understand that Yahweh exists out time, outside of our time and space, and he can inject himself into our world in different manifestations, if you will. <laughs> and I think that's what we, you know, at least for me, that's the way I rationalize this so that there could be multiple um manifestations of Yahweh at the same time in our existence. And it's just, that's different ways that we perceive him in that particular situation. That's the way I resolve yeah. that, at least at this point. That's my understanding. Now, whether that's right or not, yeah, I don't know. Well, the, the, the rabbis knew of the two Yahwehs in heaven up until Jesus came and claimed to be the son of man. And then they kind of started to get away from that to fight the rise of Christianity. Yeah. Well, what they saw as a sect of Judaism. Originally, folks, Christianity was seen by the Jews as just a sect of Judaism. You know, what Paul says, according to the sect known as the way. Right. Yeah. He, he calls it a sect of Judaism, not a new religion, Christians. So, yeah, I mean, it's a mess. Charlie and I are aware of it. If we ever get anywhere with it, we'll bring it to you. But until we've got our heads wrapped around it, we can't teach it because we don't know what the heck we're teaching. Yeah, the early church was, <clears throat> would be similar to, you know, the Catholics versus the Protestants, you know, that they they saw them as a fringe group that took off yeah. from Judaism. And Yeshua was coming back to get you closer to the way, right. away from Judaism, because, folks, Judaism is to the way as Christianity is to Judaism. They're not the same thing. And we'll be covering that probably next week. Excuse me. I'm going to get yelled at by my wife. I'm sorry, folks. I'm not drinking enough. She's going to kill me. Hopefully she's not watching it. She's a speech therapist and I'll get myself in trouble. You're going to destroy your voice. The only way I know to talk forever at a loud tone without getting my voice hoarse is to sound like a drill instructor because they've got a way of talking that protects their voice. But boy, does it make your voice sound weird. Makes you sound like some sort of cartoon character. Yeah, That's why Arlie Army sounds the way he does in Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, but they, they can do it. Yeah, they can do it all day long. They can scream at you all day long without ever getting hoarse. All right, folks. We're going to. Yes, ma'am. Could you give us an impression? No. Fine. <laughs> the I, I, vocabulary I, I, that drill instructors well, yeah, use is too. not meant for... Never mind. Forget what I just said. <laughs> My apologies. Please continue.
And I'd have to really adjust the board. <laughs> oh, yeah, because drill instructors don't talk low. Yeah, they, 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 they are not low. They are, yeah. Okay, tomorrow. Charlie, I've got absolutely no idea what we're doing tomorrow. I know it's Throwback Thursday. It's also Conspiracy Theory Thursday. And we're getting close to our week off because we're taking next week off, the whole week, the whole week of Thanksgiving. If you want a special show on what Thanksgiving really means and how it came to be, go just look up Rush Limbaugh's old story on that. He does a good job, and so does Glenn Becker. There's a whole bunch of people who cover that for you. You don't need us. What you're going to do is you're going to go through the Rumble archives, and you're either going to rewatch a show that you liked and haven't, you know, need to review it again, or you're going to find, if you're new, you're going to go find something in the old archives that, oh, that looks like, and go watch that. There's lots of cool stuff there now. We've got a whole year and a month or so of uh, two months now. We've got 14 months worth of shows. 309 episodes, was it? Yeah. So next week, you're going to look up your own, or you can work through Dr. Heiser's videos. Next week, we're off, which means the next two days, if we've got vacation next week, and this is a classroom, y'all know what we're supposed to be doing the next two days, right? Screwing off. That's how we always did it in school. And Friday will be a screw-off day, I guarantee you. I'm going to have donuts. There will be donuts. There will be donuts, and Joe is not going to have a script, and whatever comes to my pea little brain will get filtered, maybe bleeped by Charlie, and then just into the screen. No telling what we'll talk about. Tomorrow is Conspiracy Theory Thursday. I don't know that I have any new good conspiracy theories to go over. No, but Friday, if you have any questions or yep, that'd be a things good day. that you want to want to ask or talk about or topics or something yeah throw them in the comments yeah, friday's gonna be a catch-all throw them in the comments email them whatever if you got a particular conspiracy you'd like for tomorrow oh yeah throw it in the comments throw it in the comments let's talk i'll have something for tomorrow but the next two days are going to be you know joe unchained he says i'll be skipping class that's what a good student does right that's what you did when you were in high school it didn't get you. It got you in a lot of trouble, too. How's that shoulder feel there, Tortoise? So <laughs> I know him. So I know his history all the way back to when he was a thumb sucker. I can give him a hard time. <laughs> he, he was one of those. He was one of those ones in school that, yeah. Yeah, he'd have been a straight A student if he hadn't have been so busy being social. <laughs> I'm going to pay a price for this the next time I see him. <laughs> All right, guys. We thank you for a totally different subject. <laughs> the tortoise is like, this is not the tortoise you're looking for. <laughs> hey, would this count as a co conspiracy theory? We What's could that? dig into this tomorrow. Whether what, or tortoise? not what you're saying about tortoise is true. No, the tortoise won't talk to you about that. And you'd, you'd need him to verify. Otherwise, you'd think I'm just making it up. But wouldn't that be a real theory? Since we can't totally prove it? I mean. No, no. All you're going to do is reap. Okay, you're going to get me hurt by the tortoise. We, we, we can bring him on to the show if he's interested. Tortoise? That would be fun. All you're going to see is a shell. The tortoise <laughs> pulls it. He's not interested. I've already asked him. The tortoise is just going to whoop right into the shell and going to be a boring conversation be like talking to a rock that would be fun though if he would come on and yeah but probably the only way we could get him to do that is if he'd had a couple glasses of his 
his whiskey and was still smoking his cigar. So yeah, it, we we could post the picture of the Arctic tortoise now. We could do that. So we've got his, you know, we've got his logo here somewhere. <laughs> All right, folks. If uh, if we're doing anything to help you in your world, please uh, hit the thumbs up buttons. That talks to Charlie, Natasha, and I. Let's us know we're doing okay. If the show is helpful, please share it. Fireside chat only. Yeah, <laughs> I see that tortoise. Share it with um, your friends and relatives, family, et cetera, et cetera. Send them a direct link to the show or maybe to the show you want them to watch. Uh, warn them about me. We are not, we say it in a joking way. You know, I'm an acquired taste. We mean it. Wasabi black coffee. Or, you know, I am the love child between Gregory House and Sheldon Cooper. And uh, there's a lot of truth in that. If you knew me outside of here, there's a lot of truth in that. So, I prefer wasabi coffee, just saying. <laughs> the problem is you actually like it. So, <laughs> no telling for you, no accounting for the taste of some people's children. Anyhow, and if you want to keep us around past next February, March, we still need about a couple dozen of you to get onto the donut page. You know, the donate page, set up a $5 a month reoccurring donation. At least, please, please, please help us keep the lights on. Um, it, it would be, it, it would be appreciated because otherwise, you know, the clock is starting to tick around here. We got about three months, three and a half months, four months left. And then after that, I don't know where the money's coming from to keep it running, but I will demonstrate my faith. I'll just keep on trucking and expecting that somehow if we're doing Yahweh's work, he'll provide for it. How? I ain't got the foggiest idea, but I believe what we're doing is what he wants us to be doing. And if we are, he'll fund it. I believe that. So we'll see you tomorrow. I don't know exactly what we're going to have, but for long-term class members, that's usually the best classes. The ones you like the most is when I'm off the leash. It does cause Charlie and Natasha the greatest amount of heartburn and ingestion and anxiety, though. Charlie stays hovered with his finger over the mute button, and Natasha pulls her hair out. I don't understand why. Anyhow, we'll see you all tomorrow. Stay safe. Bye-bye.